Welcome to Reverb, everybody. Uh, it's been a while since we've all been back on the mic with you, but uh, I am Alex Helberg, and I am joined today by my co-hosts Calvin Pollock, Ben Williams, and Sophie Wadzak. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Hello. Hello. It's great to, uh, great to be back here with you all. It's been a while since it's been all four of us on an episode, so this is, this is exciting to, to have the whole gang back together. It is. Yeah, Absolutely. It's heartwarming in these uh, in these cold uh, cold times. As the weather grows colder, as the coronavirus pandemic rages on, uh, it's good to good to find community in whatever whatever spaces we can. Especially right now, now that uh, well, I mean, the big sort of stressful event of 2020 is is now over. Not yet, not just yet. The stress okay. continues. Uh- yeah, it rages right. on. Yeah. Well, for sure, for sure. Uh, I thought you were talking about the the election not being decided yet. Uh, the fact that we still do not have a declared winner, uh, according to the current president, uh, we are still waiting on the resolution of several lawsuits, several inquiries into the validity of our electoral system. So we're not going yeah, back like to brunch to, uh... yet. Yeah, we can't. Yeah, brunch brunch is still canceled until further notice. Still just having breakfast, wait a couple hours, then lunch. That's right. Keep those separate. That's right, yeah. A lot of things have had to be put on hold because of all this, and that is going to be the subject of our episode today. Today, we are bringing you another installment in our wildly popular Rejoinder series in which the Reverb co-hosts take hot takes, uh, although maybe we should have a discourse about this early on. Uh, Calvin uh, initially was objecting to the use of the word take. So Calvin, do you want to, what's a better phrase that we can use here? Text. Just call it a text. Everything is a text. We're living in a postmodern world. So let's call them hot texts, in my opinion. I don't like taking. I'm more of a giver. (laughs) So I think it's kind of, it's, you know, let's not, let's not sort of remove. Let's Let's yes and uh, yes. the discourse. Yes and. Are you at all concerned that hot texts could be misinterpreted as meaning something else? Oh boy! Oh, <laughs> I didn't even. Not for me. That. I'm a happily married man. <laughs> Let's just get right. that out of the way right now. Sorry, Thank ladies. You. He's taken. Yes. No. D- do not send hot texts to Calvin at four one two. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> So we at Reverb are, are going to take some hot texts from across the internet that are related to politics, culture, language, academia, anything that is generally in our wheelhouse, and critique these takes, offer a little bit more of a nuanced perspective for how we should be thinking about public issues that matter to all of us. And today, we wanted to do some hot texts surrounding the 2020 election. Now that we've had a little bit of space from the conclusion or shall we say the sort of protracted process of concluding that we've that we're still somewhat living through of this 2020 election the opinions that are emerging out from this what exactly are people saying about it and what are maybe some of the problems with the way that the discourse is heading right now so i think we're going to have a lot of fun on this episode i hope so anyway uh, kind of get a little bit of catharsis from what has otherwise been kind of a stressful and strenuous election cycle to uh, to get through. I guess maybe we can just kind of start off by sounding off very briefly on what our experience experiences of this election cycle were, kind of how we were feeling about it all the way through, just to kind of set the tone for the episode. So we can just kind of go in a round robin. Sophie, what was your experience of this election like? Well, I mean, I that's... 
I would say that's kind of, that's kind of hard to speak to. I think obviously I was very concerned with the outcome and also sort of felt, and I hope this is relatable, that there wasn't really a good outcome. There was a bad outcome and a worse outcome. And I guess I'm thankful that we had the bad outcome and not the worst outcome but I, I you know I um I would say that it's I don't know if I have any anything very profound to say about this it was stressful I was nervous I um spent a lot of time sort of processing my own emotions by explaining it all to my children who are very interested in in the outcome I think I don't know I guess I wasn't really around kids so much when Obama was the president both of my two kids have mainly been aware of Trump as the president, which is a very, you know, at least as a character, he's somebody that kids can like speak about pretty easily and like get why he's bad. I don't know. So I was eager for him to be defeated, not so thrilled or happy about Joe Biden winning. And it's been sort of hard to like balance those two, like voice my appreciation for Trump losing while being very clear that I'm not also happy about the winner, I guess. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of a bad situation to be in. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that to invoke the words of Donald Trump, uh, rigged in all caps, right? I, that's what I think about this election, but rigged, yeah. not in the sense that it was widespread fraud in the way uh, Trump talks about, but rather a structural disproportionate inequity that continues, right? Joe Biden is not a representative politician. So I think yeah, I, th I think I agree with at least that uh, decontextualized word of Donald Trump's in regards to the election. Beautifully, beautifully, concisely put, Ben. Thank Beautiful. You. Yeah. Calvin, yeah. What, about, what about you? I mean, I, I agree with all of what Ben and Sophie said. For me, this election was all about COVID, and like everything is right now. And I, I know that's that's a bleak thing to constantly return to, but I almost felt like Biden and the media— brought it up insufficiently often, like the the massively relevant context of COVID. I think that Biden could have made a much stronger critique of Trump on COVID, and he he could have kind of drawn attention to how absurd the entire election felt, that there was even a debate that a president who presided over this level of mass death and economic immiseration due to like a public health crisis that totally could have been addressed with numerous like really simple policy solutions that virtually every other country has successfully implemented at least for a while right some countries have kind of like gotten back to our levels of of caseload and and deaths but there were a lot of examples that we could have learned from, and we didn't because the president intentionally chose not to and spread lies about the disease and basically, I don't want to say politicized because, you know, public health crises are inherently political, but he definitely like turned it into a partisan campaign issue, which I think Joe Biden just kind of returned the favor and, and made it a partisan campaign issue for Democrats when I think the structural critique that Ben is talking about like applies so much to the virus itself. And yeah, that that was that was the my main reaction was like feeling 
really alienated and confused by the fact that we weren't constantly talking about Trump's record on COVID. Like we were talking about all these side issues, like not even like the Hunter Biden stuff, but even like other issues, like what is Joe Biden going to do about North Korea? Like, I don't care right now. Like (laughs) I need money and I, and I need to not die when I leave my house. To be clear, I'm not saying that foreign policy is not important. I'm saying like it, it was sort of I feel like this was framed as though it was a normal election where it's like, OK, we do 20 minutes talking about the economy. Then we do 20 minutes talking about foreign policy yes. as though there are sort of these separate issues that, you know, that we kind of run down the list and kind of get each candidate's position on when there was this massive social and economic and public health context that. I feel like should have been the entire discussion the entire time. And it really wasn't. Right. I feel like it's, it's like, but that's, I feel like it's intentional, right? Like if you start, if people really start truly talking about the ways that all of these things are connected and what, what better catalyst than COVID to like make that clear for so, so many people, but it's not in a liberal Democrats' best interests start talking about how those things are all connected. So I feel like this like piecemeal approach, like COVID was one issue, the economy was another issue. That compartmentalization, or maybe I'm cynical, but I feel like it's intentionally talked about as if they're separate to keep us all us cheap from realizing that it's all one big interconnected system that is designed to screw us all. Yeah, I'm not no, trying to be I, too dark this morning, guys. No, no. I mean, I, I think I mean, there's plenty to be dark about, I think, in this moment. And I mean, that that kind of to my to my own thoughts about how I experienced this election. I mean, this was I mean, this kind of felt like the like the perfect tail end to Donald Trump's presidency. Right. The fact that all of a sudden we have this like global pandemic, something of like. Not to be uh, uh, religious about it, but like of biblical proportions, right? Like this is something that felt like almost like I, I'm not a millenarian uh, Christian or anything like that. But this this felt like a like a plague <laughs> designed to sort of reveal the starkness of inequities in our society and the ways that, like Sophie was saying, the, the like this can just be brushed aside almost as if, oh, well, this is one issue among many that deserve, you know, equal space in our, uh, you know, meanwhile, like hundreds of thousands of people are dying in ways that could be it could be prevented like if we had policies on offer to give people money to stay home or to uh you know be able to fund our medical infrastructure properly it is bizarre to me that that was not as calvin was saying a a broader part of the conversation for this election but yeah, I mean, I think that's. I mean, I'll I'll try to one up you with the uh, the darkness point, Sophie, in saying that honestly, I mean, this is this is one hot take we can maybe discuss. Like, if it hadn't been for coronavirus, I don't know if Joe Biden would have won the election, which is kind of a sad state of affairs, right? I mean, it's a counter, it's a counterfactual. It's something you know, counterfactual history. We can never know one way or the other, but just the ways that this pandemic was able to make more of you know trump's very unique kind of ineptitude more visible to people and make them feel it acutely you know in the fact that like oh my family members are dying because this guy is not doing anything about this virus i think that that was what it took to push joe biden over the edge you know from from every sort of analysis that i've read of it and yeah i mean i think that there is some 
a, a deep, deep reason for concern within that, that if this is what it took to to get this this Democratic candidate elected, boy, what kind of state is the Democratic Party in? Folks, it's not good. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if you look at the places where Biden improved over Hillary Clinton in terms of turnout and votes flipping to him, it was almost certainly COVID that did that. It was like suburbanites, older people who have, I mean, like everyone, have experienced just like daily effects of the virus and of the pandemic and of the bad public policy response to it. And I think, too, that, and we'll get into this when we get into some of our examples, but the pandemic has exposed all of the kind of bad leadership qualities and bad rhetorical strategies that Trump kind of regularly employs, which we talked about with Cameron Mozafari, just the fact that he wouldn't talk about wearing masks for like four months. And I mean, that had real material effects, but it's also something that I think a lot of people were just like, this is an embarrassment. You know, this is this is not like the rhetorical face that we should be putting forward. And I think you're right, Alex, that Joe Biden is kind of generic Democrat A. And the fact that he just barely squeaked by over Trump tells you that the Democrats as a generic party are not are not well loved in this country. And with good reason. I mean, they haven't they also have not succeeded in getting money to us in saving small businesses in like doing all these things that would make make this slightly more bearable uh, as a crisis to be going through. So it's on them as well. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, now that we've got our our hot texts out of the way, I think we can go into discussing some of the some of the broader discourse that we've seen about offering postmortems or postmorta on the election and maybe respond to some of the things that we disagree with here. So I think, Calvin, could you get us started with your hot texts? What what have you seen that has been particularly disagreeable in the wake of this election? Absolutely. So for for today's show, I did a brief kind of social media analysis. What I did was I keyword searched the word rhetoric on the Twitter accounts of Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and AOC. Because this is something we've talked about a lot on the show. The term rhetoric gets employed in really interestingly ideological ways by politicians. It tends to be either all of the speech that you dislike empty speech, speech as as divorced from action. And of course, that's that's very different from how we on the show view rhetoric, how we talk about it, how we analyze it. I think from our perspective, rhetoric kind of implies action. Like we don't believe there's a separation between language and action. It's in fact the overlap that we're really interested in. Absolutely. So understanding how they dissociate those two and sort of use rhetoric as a pejorative, I think is really interesting. And the reason I did this was because I noticed that Joe Biden, since the election ended, has been doing this a lot. So let's let's start by just going through some of Biden's post-election or just pre-election and then post-election tweets. So November 4th, uh, the day of the election, I believe, or like a day before, Joe Biden says, once this election is finalized and behind us, It will be time for us to do what we've always done as Americans, 
to put the harsh rhetoric of the campaign behind us. <laughs> so he's he's basically asking us not to be critical, right? At, at, at face value, he's saying we need to now accept the status quo, accept inequity, and not a- actually make real change, right? So just to kind of paraphrase what he's saying there. Yeah. That's what it sounds like, Ben. I'm Yeah, I'm curious about that because I feel like some people could read this as, you know, we need to put away, you know, the personal attacks, you know, the ad hominems and, you know, the people who are who are very into rhetorical tropes, you know, talking about the kinds of communication strategies employed by people like Donald Trump, which certainly are reprehensible. But like, is this also implying that there is a sort of like both sides to this rhetoric right like this is harsh rhetoric not just of the republican party not just of trump but harsh rhetoric from all sides you know the people who are basically the people who are criticizing me need to need to be quiet now yeah a lot of this is joe biden kind of equivocating between the right and the left as though there's harsh rhetoric on all sides and we need to calm it down and and that that harsh rhetoric has the same kinds of effects in the world it's also interesting and i think one of the strategies that that it looks like is going on a lot in here is tying the sort of lack of rhetoric to the American identity, right? He's saying it's time for us to do what we've always done as Americans, which is to put harsh rhetoric behind us, right? Which is to say, you know, Americans are unified. We don't have disagreements. We don't have harsh rhetoric to exchange with one another. We need to put our differences aside and move forward as as one people, which, you know, any analysis of socioeconomic inequity uh, kind of throws that distinction under the bus a little bit, uh, or that that unification promise under the bus, I think. Well, it taps into that, I think, trend that you see a lot in discussing this past presidential term and this election cycle as if, is it a buildup and a culmination of decades of systemic rigging and you know is like is donald trump sort of a culmination or is he an aberration and i feel like joe biden thinks like oh that was a weird blip huh trump that was strange let's get back to normal and and i think that that's indicative of like a sort of a divide in mentality as to whether you understand what just happened as inevitable because of everything that's led up to it or as like a weird fluke that maybe we can just chill and it won't happen again definitely yeah and i I mean i think it's key to point out the harsh rhetoric of the campaign. This is implying that historically, Americans at the end of every election, that's it. We no longer disagree. Put it all no back longer, in the trunk. Put it back up in the attic. We're all just super nice. Like, we're all having tea parties at that point, which is great. <laughs> I love tea and I love parties, right. but not during well, COVID. I mean, so, yeah, you know, it's 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 inevitably we're going to see a resurgence of the Tea Party, uh, you know, the Republican uh, flank. You know, yeah, like, which is a very calm, no harsh rhetoric coming out no of that. No harsh rhetoric, that, yeah, uh, nothing like that. That crew at all. So then November 7th, he says, it's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, put it away, to lower <laughs> the temperature, to see each other again, to listen to each other again. I, I want to say, I, I think that to see each other again and to listen to each other again. I'd really like to to focus on that a, a bit, right? So if we're assuming that he's presupposed here that it is the work of Americans to put harsh rhetoric aside and then not disagree, have bipartisan ideology or conceptions of what is best for the nation, we are now in a place where we're able to see one another, right? But you think about what the pandemic has exposed is exposed the limitations of our, you know, rhetorical vision or sight. 
It's exposed the limitations of how we see one another, how we see inequality. So this being phrased almost uh, factually as though it can happen is a failure again to recognize what it requires to really see one another when structural racism exists, when structural economic disparity exists, when we're not even on the same plane by which we can see or listen to one another, right? Well, and that's one of the other really fascinating things about this is the, is the I think, Ben, you're beautifully pointing out the sort of conceptual metaphors that are operative in a tweet like this. You know, harsh rhetoric is something that can be put away, right? You know, we can just take our take our feelings, you know, drop it into a box, you know, drop a lock on it. And uh, yeah, we don't have to worry about that. We're lowering the temperature, right? Something as simple as, you know, put it in the freezer for a couple hours. It'll be fine. Seeing each other, listening to each other. These are all metaphorical conceptualizations of of complex political you know processes and like the the process of ideology formation and people's lived material experiences these are not just simple actions to be done right i want to tell joe biden that i can't i actually can't lower the temperature i can crack the window but because <laughs> i'm a tenant no i mean and this is this gets at kind of what we're pointing out about that joe biden doesn't see the economy as operative in a rhetorical space, I can't lower the temperature. My landlord controls it. Whew. Right. Well, well that's sad. exactly it. Like anybody who's saying like, let's calm down, let's stop saying all this stuff is somebody who's in a position to stop talking about it and they'll still be fine. Whereas right. people who are using harsh rhetoric or whatever you want to call it because they're literally dying and are losing everything that they've worked for because of this pandemic and and because of other, I mean, that's the thing, like pandemic is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot that makes this country unlivable for a lot of people. And to suggest that like, oh, well, maybe stop being so nasty about it is intensely insulting, I think, for the people who feel like they will only be heard if they're out screaming in the street because the system has failed them. Like you're speaking from your privilege, Joe Biden. Absolutely. And I think why I want to briefly in a second look at like Bernie and AOC and I would even say Hillary when they talk about rhetoric they name what kind of rhetoric they're critiquing and so I think like he's right there is harsh rhetoric from the far right and from the president and honestly from the secretary of state and from like these massively powerful officials who can operationalize their rhetoric in policy and, you know, harm lots and lots of people, right? And there's harsh rhetoric from, you know, CEOs of major corporations who don't treat their workers as human beings, right? That is harsh rhetoric that we should be concerned about, but he, he does this equivocation where it's just kind of harsh rhetoric generally, and all Americans need to come together and stop using it, right? And and it's it's at that point that I, that I agree with you, Sophie. It's, it's a very privileged point of view. Because you're just saying that, like, talking about problems is not something we need to do anymore. We won. Or that talking about them is the problem. Like, if you just don't talk about yes. the problems, then we won't have them anymore. That's Similar right. to Trump's whole strategy of just not <laughs> testing, and then there won't be as many cases. Like, if you can just get us all to be quiet, then everything will go back to normal, which is like a fairy tale. Right. And so Biden, November 24th, the election is over. It's time to put aside the partisanship and the rhetoric designed to demonize one another. We have to come together. 
again, the conceptual metaphors here. He's he's criticizing rhetoric as he's using it. Uh, you know, putting putting it off to the side, push it away. We don't have to look at that. Just you know, paint over it. It's fine. Yeah, I think people who hear this, and and this is something that like Adam Johnson has talked about a lot on citations needed. I think people who actually pay attention to this and like read this who are not already like died in the wool massive Biden supporters this comes across as really like false and kind of phony because he's obviously saying that the republicans are too partisan the republicans use rhetoric that demonize but he won't name that like he won't actually come out and say that so he's so he is being partisan and he's being duplicitous about it Right. right. Do you think he's specifically talking about Republicans? I kind of get, I mean, maybe it's my bias, but the read I have on this is that he is talking about Republicans, but he's also talking about the radical left, which is just as ra- radical. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's a message. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's talking about both. And I think that's still partisan, right? It's it's a partisan centrist Democrat point of view, but he won't name it as such, right? And so then finally, like a few days ago, on November 29th, It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, and listen to each other again. To make progress, we must stop treating our opponents as our enemy. We are not enemies. We are Americans. Again, Americans. We don't use rhetoric. We don't disagree. We're just we're just one unified uh, body of people who have uniform, similar experiences, and uh, you know, no reason to disagree about our about our problems. I I think too here that you know. So many of Joe Biden's failures come from the fact that he's incapable of recognizing what liberal American politics are, right? We are not enemies. We are Americans. Well, I would argue that American identity is rooted in what Karma Chavez would call an alienizing logic, right? It is exclusionary politics that is at the core and the heart of this nation. So those two simple claims, (laughs) not enemies, we are Americans but they are the same thing, right? Americanism and and those who call themselves an American are very, you know, rooted in this politics of dichotomy, in this politics of exclusion. There's no such thing as an us without a them. That's right. I also just want to point out, it's kind of funny that, uh, you know, on the screen share that Calvin is sharing with us, it's also including results for uh, rhetoric with a K. I don't know what that's all about, but... uh, I, I did just Twitter search it. Apparently, there's a DJ named uh, DJ Rhetoric. <laughs> does he talk a lot about Joe Biden? I bet he does. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, Most no. DJs do. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of DJs, so I wanted to compare how Trump has used rhetoric in recent months. Very different, but equally revealing. So on March 9th, shortly before the pandemic, Trump said, Crying Chuck Schumer said, you will pay the price for this. You won't know what hit you. That is far beyond simple rhetoric. That is a physical threat, or at least a threat that you better vote for us. Trouble ahead. <laughs> Isn't Trump famous for threatening people to vote for him and his first candidates? It's just like, I think, um, I don't know. I will miss the nicknames. Crying Chuck Schumer. Yeah. But also, yeah, glossing over his literal incitements to violence at his rallies where he's literally saying like, hey, if you hit that guy right there, I'll pay for your legal fees. He's calling out, again, a metaphor here. You won't know what hit you and saying like, oh, well, this is actually a physical threat. I'm going to deliberately misread this in order to re-render it as a physical threat. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me that he kind of 
minimizes rhetoric in a, in a way. He says simple rhetoric as though rhetoric plus violence and action is is the concern for Trump. But I think in the Joe Biden tweets, we see that rhetoric sort of is violent to Biden. The fact that we need to use it at all is is a violent situation, and it's something that we should resolve somehow just through collective um, action and, and sort of positive moral character. So then on September 17th, this is the only other recent instance of Trump using rhetoric, the word rhetoric. Mm-hmm. September 17th, Joe Biden called police the enemy, quote unquote, and vilified them as a racist, oppressive force. The rhetoric of Joe Biden and the radical left puts our great law enforcement in danger. Kind of the same. I mean, just rhetoric as a pejorative. Yeah, rhetoric as rhetoric as violence, right? Again, I mean, first of all, do we even know if this is a valid claim here that Biden is calling police the enemy? Because that personally does not sound like something that Joe Biden would say. I wish. No, just kidding. Cut that. Uh, <laughs> well, it does. I think it. it's like this. You see that the idea that or maybe not the true idea, but the way that the people on the right talk about Joe Biden as if he is this like radical leftist that maybe a lot of us would prefer, but he certainly is not. Like, I think Joe Biden isn't what anybody wants him to be. Like the the right wants him to be sort of this scary communist leader that they can really rally against. Whereas the left think he's too, you know it, it's like he's we, like we also of, want him to be a communist leader right is, is that would be great <laughs> like if, if the way that the right talked about it was true i would prefer that to like what we've got which is somebody who's like as far as i can tell all talk all platitudes and not a lot of policy that i can like sink my teeth into and feel like oh yes i'm relieved for january to roll around like i right. and as we were just looking at he's someone who equivocates between us and the far right right so, yeah, I, I think you're right, Alex. It's funny that he uses the quote, the enemy. I guarantee that's not a direct quote. I mean, this is a great example, a very small example of like Trumpist misinformation where, you know, a ton of his followers now, because they saw this tweet, think that Joe Biden literally said that. I, I bet he said police are not the enemy and Trump just <laughs> cut it right after the not. <laughs> Yeah, so that's great. Yeah, so so that's Trump. Like for him, it's kind of it's similarly pejorative, but it's also something that we want to separate from violence. I did want to point out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sorry, just going back, January eighteenth, twenty nineteen. Never seen the Republican Party so unified. No cave, quote unquote on the issue of border and national security, a beautiful thing to see, especially when you hear the new rhetoric spewing from the mouths of the Democrats who talk open border, high taxes, and crime. Stop criminals and drugs now. Uh, I like that reference to um, Perlman and Ulbricht's Titeca, <laughs> the new rhetoric. Trump, not a fan. More more of an Aristotelian. For all the non-disciplinary rhetoricians out there, uh, the new rhetoric is a foundational work in uh, of rhetorical theory published uh, post-World War II by Chaim Perlman and Lucy Ulbricht's Titeca. And, and yeah, and the Democrats are in full support of it. They're spewing things about hierarchies of values and the dissociation of concepts just well, all over the place. I was going to point place. out that this, this is kind of ironic because Trump's entire post-election strategy has been dissociated. Yes. Uh, from the actual results. So from Absolutely. dissociating appearance and reality. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, also, again, the strategic use of quotes here on cave. No cave on the issue of border and national security. So, again, this is— That's uh, another philosophy reference, the that's cave. Right. Yes, yeah, he's referring Play-Doh. to a platonic a platonic cave. There's no uh, there's no semblance when it comes to the issue of uh, border and national security. He's trying to bring us out of the cave. Yeah. <laughs> Man, Donald Trump just getting real, real heady, real philosophical in this tweet. I also like how he articulates this as if the Democratic platform is open border, high taxes, and crime. <laughs> yeah okay i guess i don't know i'm not really sure specifically what he means democrats are pro-crime yeah yeah <laughs> famously pro-crime uh democrats yes <laughs> what's been so interesting about all of these texts too right is there's this momentary recognition of how rhetoric itself is imbricated in action right he says like this rhetorical strategy and thing is dangerous and then you know as in the fashion of any hypocrite does it himself and incites violence repeatedly throughout his language right so this text it's or this tweet (laughs) text to calvin's word it very much is inciting that type of violence right it's doing what his campaign strategy has always been criminalizing the borderland criminalizing those who (laughs) are hyper-racialized in those regions, right? So this is rhetorical violence at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. So real quick, actually, I, we don't need to go through Bernie, Hillary, and AOC, but I, what I will say is that... Bernie's getting the shaft again. They're just <laughs> canceling him. Unbelievable. Look, <laughs> I think we almost don't need to read it because we read bad texts on this on That's this right. type of show. And, and I think what's good is that he's direct. I mean, he says... On, on October 27th, he's quoting, you know, Trump on COVID-19, Trump saying, we're rounding a corner, Dr. Fauci is an idiot, don't be afraid of COVID, Trump's anti-science attitude is why 225,000 Americans are dead and why the pandemic is surging nationwide. We need a president who believes in science, not right-wing rhetoric. And so I like that he names right wing there he tells us what kind of rhetoric we should be critiquing and he also uses direct quotes it's it's a richer rhetorical analysis as well yeah no i also like how this attributes causality here too right trump's anti-science attitude is why 225,000 americans are dead that's more direct than your than you would get from a lot of other politicians the one thing that i would gripe about is that he's uh, dissociating science and rhetoric here uh, or the idea that you know we need <laughs> I know that's that, no, I, I, right, I know, I know, right, I know. Right wing rhetoric. <laughs> I know. I'm, which I, I think most, is I'm true. most I'm mostly joking here. But but I mean also I'm sort of not because I feel like at a at a broader level there is this kind of dissociation between the discourse of science as being objective and factual and rhetoric as being this sort of mere thing that is, you know, that is, you know, the the flowery ornamentation of language and not the fact that rhetoric is imbricated in all of this, right? Again, that's much more difficult to do in the rhetorical situation here where you're literally dealing with people who don't want to take vaccines because they think it gives you autism or something like that. You know, when we're communicating at that level, it's probably not useful to say people who we need a president who believes in the rhetoric of science, not the rhetoric of the right wing, and rather just go go and say science yeah no and i and i think this exposes some duplicity and hypocrisy on the part of bernie and joe biden you know bernie campaigned really hard for joe biden and they kept repeating this line of we believe in science while at the same time not committing to banning fracking and other things that like the science is clear 
harm the environment and and harm all of our public health. So there's a there's a kind of very strategic and just unhelpful use of the term science as an ideograph, as a positive ideograph. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. all I have. Uh, clearly, rhetoric is you know an important thing to these politicians, not in the way that it is to us, right. and that's why we do what we do and they do what they do. Yeah. Prescription number one, I think, to emerge from this analysis, uh, post, post-election 2020, more rhetoric, not less. Well, on that note, I actually have a similar instance of what we might call dialogical contraction, NB, our uh, episode on dialogicality from a while back, in which the realm of possible discourse, of possible opinions to hold is contracted, is shrunk down. I have a couple of examples uh, from recent politics that that kind of illustrate a contraction in the realm of believable beliefs that are kind of high profile here. So I'm going to share my screen with my co-host now and hopefully get a chance to get the sound working here. If you believe, as, as I do, that we should be able to reform the criminal justice system so that it's not biased and treats everybody fairly, I guess you can use a snappy slogan like, defund the police, but you know you've lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. But if you instead say, let's reform the police department so that everybody's being treated fairly, you know, divert young people from getting into crime. And if there's a homeless guy, can maybe we send a mental health worker there instead of an armed unit that could end up resulting in a tragedy? Suddenly, a whole bunch of folks who might not otherwise listen to you are listening to you. So the key is deciding, do you want to actually get something done or do you want to feel good among the people you already agree with? And if you want to get something done in a democracy, in a country as big and diverse as ours, then you've got to be able to meet people where they are and play a, a game of addition and not subtraction. So for those of you listening in here, that was former President Barack Obama going off on what has been somewhat of a familiar refrain among establishment Democrats in the wake of the election, which is all of these slogans that we're hearing, like defund the police or abolish prisons and things like that, are are too radical. They are subtractive from the movement that we're trying to build. It's not getting more people on our side to use slogan, snappy slogans like this. I think uh, Erica Spanberger was the other person who was it was leaked in a call among other Democratic officials as saying, never use the word socialism ever again. You know, don't you say defund, you know, defund the police almost cost me my reelection. Connor Lamb also in the Pittsburgh area. So that's right. That's right. Yeah. And went off on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other progressive Congress people who are using similar kinds of phrases in articulating their policy positions. So. What are your thoughts on uh, the former president going off on defund the police? I find this, what he just said, just riddled with irony. I don't remember his exact words, but he said something like, do you want to get something done or do you want to agree with the people you already agree with? I would argue that saying, oh, instead of defund the police, we should reform the police isn't going to get anything done because we've seen attempts at that and it's diametrically opposed to defund the police because reforming the police costs money. Attempts to reform the police 
have increased police budgets all across the nation, and it doesn't seem to work. We have the same outcomes we've been seeing despite all of these attempts to reform it. So do we want to get at something done for real, or do we want to agree with our fellow centrist Democrats that reforming is how we do it, which, as we've seen, doesn't do anything to alleviate the suffering of the people that police abuse. So I feel like this is another example of like, I'm going to use fancy words to say the exact opposite of what's really happening. And it's going to sound great because I'm so cool and I'm Obama. Felix and I just recorded an episode all about Defund the Police that we just posted this morning. So I've got a lot of thoughts oh, about nice. this. Nice plug. We'll read Thank up. you. Thank you very much. Uh, tune into the Blurst Times, everybody. But um, this idea that, that centrist Democrats seem to have, that people don't want what they say they want. This extends to defunding the police, Medicare for all, things that overwhelmingly the Democratic base does want, that somehow Democratic leadership tells us we don't want. I don't know how they, how they can square those things. How can they both be true? I also just wanted to point out a connection to what we were talking about before with the kind of duplicitous use of rhetoric is bad while I'm using it. Like slogans are bad now, like yeah. slogan, snappy slogan. I mean, that is <laughs> right. So that's the most obvious hypocrisy is that, right. you know, Obama himself won, you know, eight years of a presidency on it on a slogan. Yeah. And, you know. And credit to his his communication team. They did amazing work. That's all I'm going to say about that. But uh, <laughs> but it's just bizarre. Like, no one believes that slogans are bad. And that really tells you that what's going on here is this is, this is a power play. I mean, this is someone who has incredible power over the broad, like, liberal side of the political spectrum this, like And so the content of what he says here is really not as important as the act of disciplining the liberal base and the democratic base. And I think that's really what he's doing. And what makes that especially obvious to me is this absurd idea that slogans are bad. I mean, slogans are an inevitable part of doing politics. Right. And it's like pulling up the ladder behind him, right? Like, uh, well, I, yes, I leveraged slogans to rally my base and to get people on board but actually you guys should not do that because it's very alienating for me and i don't like it like it just seems like does he mean himself when he says people you lose people when you say that like i don't agree at all and i think it's yeah very it's in bad faith to all of a sudden say that the very things that propelled you into the position of power that you now hold are somehow illegitimate when they're used to voice desires and demands that you yourself don't align with yeah what's strange too is just all the different tactics that these are using by way of disciplining i like that word calvin i think that that is definitely what's being done throughout the biden tweets as well right he's saying put aside the harsh rhetoric and let's listen to one another let's hear one another and here obama is disciplining the democratic base and trying to root it in the sense that if we reform police Perhaps they will be able to listen and to see, but as has been exposed, that type of work is not effective, right? And by saying that you need to be disciplined into straying away from this pithy phrase, straying away from this real praxis of change that contributes to, you know, reimagining, and it's not just defunding, right? It's a move that works toward abolishing. 
And I think the very fact that that language is not integrated into here, it's taking issue with even a more, um, it's not as radical left as something like abolish, right? But he's taking issue with something that's closer to his base, right? So it's just an incredible act of discipline on both parts. Yeah. Absolutely. And the idea that people want to be scolded. Like, I don't remember feeling like I elected people so that they could shame and scold me. And that's nevertheless what I get from your Barack Obamas and your Nancy Pelosi's, like, telling me what's best for me mm -hmm. when it doesn't seem like they really have a clue about what's best for me or for anybody else. Well, they're the adults in the room, you know? We're just their, their disruptive children who need to be put in a timeout so that we can you know, learn to speak well, speak politely. I also just want to say, yeah, on that note of disciplining, there's a lot of very like deeply conservative tells in that clip. If you heard the bit where he's talking about, you know, why don't we focus more on getting young people out of crime, you know, like making this an issue of personal responsibility on the part of people who are, you know, quote unquote, becoming criminals or you know uh who are uh, other than the fact that like people are literally made criminals by the police right <laughs> like there are things like so many nonviolent offenses that people are arrested for just because they are profiled or you know for any other slew of illegitimate reasons like the police are the problem here it's not people committing crimes it's the fact that like people are being criminalized in that way and also, I just wanted to note the whole thing about like, yeah, if there's a if there's a homeless guy, you know, get some mental health worker out there or something. Not only is that just incredibly disrespectful, uh, you know, to uh, housing insecure people. It reminded me of that Simpsons clip. It's like the the promotional video for this ideal community, Cypress Creek, where they're taking this like burned, you know, crime ridden neighborhood and all of the abandoned buildings are transformed into coffee shops. Look at this place. Somebody ought to build a town that works. Somebody did. And then, uh, and then after a while, there's just like there's a homeless man on the street who just uh, transforms into a mailbox. Um, that was that that was what I was expecting Obama to say was you know if there's a homeless guy out there you know just just replace him with a mailbox you know that then everything will be great. But what's so frustrating about what he says? So setting aside whether or not if you're homeless you need mental health support, uh, setting right. that whole issue aside, which is itself quite problematic. The idea that, okay, if there's a homeless person and they need some support, let's bring in some other kind of support, that is defunding the police. We yes. don't do that right now because all of our money goes to police officers. And so what Obama, you're saying is, oh, if somebody needs some other kind of help, let's send them that help. You have to defund the police to do that. So, so the idea that he's talking about defund the police as like a quick and snappy way of saying abolish all police but really what we should do this reasonable thing that somehow not defund the police when that's exactly what it is like it's it's infuriating to listen to him casually say things like that as if they have any bearing in reality i wonder if that sort of aligns with his ideas though right so in positioning a mental health care worker in relation to the police i think he's actually doing the work of saying that reformist agendas will make it to where this person will be trained in similar tactics as the police and reify those conditions of brutality, especially if we buy into the, the police state that he's ascribing to, right? It's, it's not going to be a process of defunding. It's going to be a process of overfunding and expanding what policing is and rather reimagining policing as being something more ubiquitous 
in its capabilities of disciplining and punishing people, right? And brutalizing people. So I think that that actually aligns with his, his political agenda here. It's pretty terrifying. Absolutely. This concludes part one of our two-part rejoinder episode. Join us next time when we take down more hot texts from the aftermath of the 2020 election. Our show today was produced by Ben Williams, Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak, with editing work by me, Alex Helberg. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. Cypress Creek, where dreams come true. Your dreams may vary from those of Globex Corporation, its subsidiaries, and shareholders.